Hey everyone, it's Jen here with the Mugwort and Moon podcast, bringing you our third episode of the show. And I am super excited for this episode because it is probably, it's about probably one of my favorite activities ever, and that is foraging. And I live in northern Vermont, for those of you who don't know, and spring foraging is it's got to be like a rite of passage as a Vermonter. Um, A lot of people who come to Vermont or who've lived in Vermont their whole lives uh, understand the importance and the benefit of working with the land, living off the land, preserving native flora, and just promoting a healthy ecosystem. And I think foraging has a lot to do with conservation and helping preserve our natural community and our natural environment because you want to be able to go back and harvest for years to come. Um, You don't want to over harvest a certain thing because if you do then you might not have access to that in a couple years or other people might not have access to that in a couple of years. Um, So it's really important to practice conservation while foraging. So uh, for this episode I just want to talk about some of my favorite spring uh, forage, favorite plants that I forage in the spring. And uh, I'm going to go into like some of the facts, I'll share the scientific names, some of the things that they can be used for. Um, All of the things that I'm going to mention are edible. Um, I will put a disclaimer and just say if you are new to foraging or um, are not familiar with identifying plants, please have somebody who is... Um, knowledgeable in this field come with you and do not consume anything that you are not 100% sure of what it is because there are some toxic lookalikes to some of the things that are available um, in our woods here in the northeast so um, just keep that in mind if you're not familiar with foraging it's always good to uh, pick up some books utilize the internet because the internet's a great resource for helping you know the difference between what is uh, like an actual edible plant and what is the toxic or poisonous lookalike and I do not want anybody potentially hurting themselves or their families or friends Um, and please always 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 make sure that you are 100% positive and you 100% positively identify whatever you're foraging before you touch it before you pick it up um, it can be really helpful to take a picture they have a lot of apps now where you can just take a picture and it sends it through like a database and they scour the internet for matching images and it will tell you some of the characteristics of certain things and help you identify those plants and there's also several books that I would recommend so I will talk about those in this episode as well so if you are like me and you have an unhealthy obsession with plants and gardening and nature um, and learning how to be self-sufficient and live off the land then I think this will be the perfect episode for you. So let's get started. The first plant I'm going to talk about and arguably the most famous spring forager's dream um, is the spring ephemeral native edible perennial, um, say that three times fast, I know that's a mouthful, is ramps. 
And if you don't know what ramps are, the scientific name for them is Allium trichocum, and Allium means it is in the onion family. Um, ramps are a garlicky onion spring ephemeral, um, and ephemeral means that it only comes up for a very short period of time within a particular window in the spring. I mean, you have like maybe three weeks to a month in the spring to be able to harvest ramps before the leaves die back and you can't really see them anymore because the leaves come in and they cover the forest so the ramps are no longer getting all the sun but ramps are typically one of the first things to come up in the spring so it's really easy to spot if you are walking through the woods and you see an eastern facing slope and you're in a woodland with primarily maple or beech trees and you've got really moist rich soil then chances are you will probably find ramps if you see like a, a huge patch of vibrant green as you're walking in the forest i implore you to go check it out um, and chances are you'll probably smell them before you see them because they smell like a garlicky onion type like leafy, almost like a vegetable, um, but they're more, I would call them an herb, um, and they're amazing to add to any dish, really. Um, they're great to just add into dinner, to add a little bit of flavor to things, and so I do want to talk about ramps because they are arguably one of the most famous spring ephemerals that people harvest um, come like late April, early May, sometimes into June, depending on if we've had a cold spring or not. Um, I know this year we have had a cold spring, so the ramps have been out for a bit longer than what I'm normally used to, and I mean, we haven't even had the leaves fully bloom yet on most of the trees, and it's May 5th as of today. Um, and I know last year it warmed up way sooner, but Ramps are typically found along with trout lily and blue cohosh, which are both um, very native plants to northeast forests. And it's a species of wild onion that is native to the eastern U.S. and Canada. And it can be found as far west as Colorado. So that is really interesting to me. Um, it is very important to always positively identify anything you're foraging for, um, like I said in the disclaimer earlier. For example, ramps are very easily identifiable by their distinct smell, but every year you will hear about uh, poisonings and people who have put themselves in the hospital because they did not positively identify what they were foraging for and they accidentally consumed false hellebore which is the toxic lookalike to ramps and so they are very easily identifiable by their distinct smell they smell like garlic and onions and if you come across something that's green and it looks like ramps but it doesn't have the smell then i would say pass on that do not consume it um, it's most likely the toxic lookalike so ramps at least in vermont and in most of the northeast united states are very prolific um, they are native to the northeast united states and they grow 
prolifically throughout our forests. So over harvesting in Vermont is not as much of a concern, but as more and more people get into foraging, um, there are some areas that have become over harvested and it takes ramps about seven years to germinate their seeds. Um, be, and then about three years before they're actually producing leaves that pop out of the ground. And at that point, it would be like a bulb or two. So people, conservationists say to only harvest no more than a third of the patch that you are harvesting from. And a best practice would be to only take one leaf from each plant and do not dig up the bulbs because the bulbs they grow underground um, just like onions and when the leaves die off come late spring then the bulbs are just under the ground growing and growing and growing and then in the fall they put out their seeds and then once they drop their seeds on the ground they germinate to produce more plants for the next year and if you dig up those bulbs then they can't produce their seeds to germinate and continue reproducing and so that is resulting in patches of ramps dying out in certain areas and in a lot of the United States ramps actually are an endangered species. Um, here in Vermont they are not so that's why they are one of the most popular spring ephemerals to forage for um, but it's definitely recommended to check with your local forest service if you're anywhere outside of the eastern United States before going and harvesting these plants to make sure that they're not in a protected status. Some false lookalikes to ramps include false hellebore, lily of the valley, and skunk cabbage, all of which I think, in my personal opinion, as an experienced forager, herbalist, and just like crazy plant person, um, I think all of them can be easily identified as not being ramps. Um, to me, when I see ramps, like I think it's very obvious. And if anything that you're, if you're looking for ramps and anything that you're foraging for does not have that very distinct garlic and onion smell, then I would leave it. I would not touch it. Um, chances are it is one of the toxic poisonous false lookalikes. And um, they do sometimes grow next to each other. I've actually seen, so I'm in a group for Vermont foragers, which is a really awesome group. If you're in Vermont, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's on Facebook. And I mean, people from all over the state and all over the country come to Vermont and they share the bounty of the things that they harvest in the forest. And it just makes my heart so happy. Um, but there are pictures, people share pictures of false hellebore growing directly next to a patch of ramps. So I can see why if somebody is inexperienced, they may not know the difference and they accidentally consume the toxic one. And that's really, really dangerous. So um, always, always double and triple check your resources use multiple resources don't just trust one source so like if you're on the internet and you look something up and it's like yep that's definitely it definitely please uh get a second opinion go look at another source or look in a book or go consult a group with some pictures because people people who do regularly forage are very very knowledgeable typically and uh it should be pretty easy to like cross examine through different resources to make sure you've got the right thing and like i said always be 100 percent positive about what you're consuming
All right, the next spring foraging delicacy that I'm going to talk about are fiddleheads. Um, for those who don't know, fiddleheads are the unfurled tops of an ostrich fern. And ostrich fern scientific name is Matiuchia struthiopterus, which to me honestly sounds like the name for a dinosaur. And funny enough, the ferns that we have growing in all over the world, actually, um, ferns are one of the oldest plants in the world and they have actually been around as long as the dinosaurs so i thought that was just a fun fact fiddleheads are one of the first spring edibles that arrives usually within the first within a few weeks of ramps and they grow in sandy riparian areas um so like close to river banks and bodies of water and they are easily identified by the groove in their stem and their brown papery covering. And this papery covering, it like almost looks like a paper bag. Um, say like a paper bag got wet and it starts like peeling away in sheets. That's kind of what the covering of a fiddlehead looks like. And they primarily grow in shady, woodsy areas near water. And the fiddleheads that people consume are the unfurled tops of ostrich ferns. Um, fiddleheads are a spring delicacy that is highly sought after by local restaurants and grocery stores for the first few weeks in the spring. Um, and they sell for a pretty penny too. If you go to the store, um, and you try to buy fiddleheads, like they're expensive. And so I would describe the taste as being a cross between like green beans and asparagus. And they make a really good side to any dish. They can go with like steak, chicken, fish. They are a really good addition to just about any meal. And personally, I like to cook them with a little bit of garlic, butter, and some salt. And they're just like chef's kiss. Fiddleheads are very easy to identify, um, but there are a few types of ferns that could be mistaken as being fiddleheads that are actually toxic. So a few other types of ferns include the wood fern, which is the closest lookalike and is technically edible, but I personally avoid it um, because I haven't done enough research into that type of fern to be comfortable with consuming it. Um, the wood fern looks very similar to the fiddlehead fern in just that um, it's also got some brown papery covering on it, but the papery covering grows differently and it's a little bit darker in color and the wood fern is significantly smaller than the ostrich fern. So that's how you would differentiate between the two of those. Another type of fern that is not edible would be a Christmas fern, which has a white fuzzy paper coating. Um, the cinnamon fern, which also has a white fuzzy coating on it, is just a very, very heavy white fuzz all over it. Um, and you would definitely not want to eat that. A royal fern, which grows red or purple. Um, a lady fern, which has black or dark brown paper tufts that grow all the way down the shaft of the fiddlehead. Um, and the bracken fern, which has little hairs on it, and it grows much, much smaller. Um, you can find fiddleheads if you're in a shady forested area and look for the crowns or bunches of unfurled fiddleheads close to the ground. Um, you can also find them close to the previous year's dried up fronds. Um, and once you see them one time, you're going to find them everywhere. Thank you. 
Next up is garlic mustard. And this one is one of my favorite spring foraging plants for numerous reasons. Um, first, the scientific name for garlic mustard is Aliaria petiolata. Aliaria petiolata. Um, one, I just think that is a beautiful scientific name for a plant. I could say it all day long. But garlic mustard is another one of my favorite spring edibles because it is actually highly invasive and destructive to local ecosystems. So you are actually doing nature a public service by removing them from the ground. Um, ripping them out by their roots is one of the only ways to prevent them from spreading. And they are so highly invasive. They grow very quickly. They reproduce very quickly. Um, and they actually like take over entire forests and prevent other plants from being able to grow, which is causing a lot of destruction to our native ecosystems. It was originally introduced in the 1800s as colonists from Europe brought it over as a form of erosion control and for its herbal uses. Um, garlic mustard is easily identifiable by its heart-shaped toothed leaves and four-petaled white flowers when it goes to seed, and it smells like garlic when you crush the leaves, so that's how you would identify it. Garlic mustard is most edible when it's a small young plant in the early, early spring um, as the cyanide toxicity levels increase as it gets larger and more established. And it's also a lot harder to remove when it's a large plant. Um, it's become incredibly invasive all over North America and it spreads its seeds with the wind. So it gains a foothold in fields and forests by emerging earlier in the spring than many other native plants. And by the time native species are ready to grow, garlic mustard has blocked their sunlight and outcompeted them for moisture and vital nutrients. So it's just, it's a super highly invasive plant that is destroying native ecosystems all across North America. Um, climate change is exacerbating garlic mustard's aggressiveness and ability to outcompete native plants by crowding them out and inhibiting trees from growing because garlic mustard's roots release chemicals that alter the important underground network of fungi that connect nutrients between native plants, inhibiting the growth of important species like trees. And that's all kinds of trees. The goal of garlic mustard mitigation is to pull up the roots before the plant goes to seed and spreads with the wind. Um, so it is actually May 18th right now in Northern Vermont. And um, my mom actually has garlic mustard that grows in her backyard. So every year I go and try to pull up as much as I can by the roots. And every year it does come back, but it's coming back less and less. Um, however, it most of it has gone to seed by now. If you look on the side of the road, you'll see a pretty tall um, rosette style plant that has white flowers on the top and by the time it's growing those flowers it's already gone to seed and it's spreading itself in the wind so we want to we want to stop that um garlic mustard has a long taproot like dandelion so in order to pull them up it's a good idea to do it after a heavy rain when the soil is moist and easily workable because that taproot goes so deep into the ground and if you don't get all of the root of the garlic mustard it's just going to continue reproducing for following years um some uses for garlic mustard so you can cook with garlic mustard as long as you don't get it when it's um a very mature plant you want to get it while it's still young and so the way i use garlic mustard is i like to dry it 
and I grind it into a spice that I use in just like everyday cooking. Um, it makes a really good addition to mashed potatoes. It makes some delicious mashed potatoes and it's really good on steak or chicken and you can also eat the leaves fresh in a salad. Um, just make sure to brush your teeth after because it's pretty stinky. Next up, I am talking about morels, morel mushrooms. And if you don't know what those are, the scientific name for them is Morchella esculenta. Um, I absolutely love the scientific names of these plants. They're all so pretty. And I think we should use them more often instead of their common names because I just think they sound great. But uh, morels are every spring forager's dream fungi. Um, they're very highly sought after each year in early spring. And I have been lucky enough in past years to find some, um, but this year I have not found any yet. I found one in my yard and I picked it by accident and I haven't seen any since. Um, so that makes me a little sad, but they are highly, highly sought after each spring as the temperatures rise above 50 degrees and they stay that way consistently um, because morels typically grow after good rain and as long as temperatures are above 50 degrees for usually about a week to two weeks. Um, so that way the soil temperatures are above 50 degrees. And they are primarily found in forests of ash, oak, and elm trees. And they also really like old apple orchards. So if you're wandering in the forest and you come across some old apple trees, look at the base of those trees and see if you can find some morels because they do have a tendency to grow around old apple trees and they're easily identifiable by their cone-shaped cap with a honeycomb-like appearance um I also think it kind of looks like a brain so I like to use that as an analogy and they are always hollow on the inside so if you cut one open and it's hollow on the inside and it fits all of that criteria chances are it's a morel they love disturbed soils in areas where there may have been clearings or forest fires. And if you find one morel, chances are within a 20 foot radius, there could be hundreds more as they tend to grow close together in the same area. And states with the most morels in the spring include Michigan, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, and Vermont. Um, Vermont, I would say Vermont is like the morel capital of the United States because we just, I see so many people finding morels every single day. And let me just say, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. Morels are a delicious addition to a meal. You can eat them on their own, cooked in some butter. Um, but I've also seen people make pasta sauce with them, um, like an Alfredo type sauce. I've seen them put on pizza and put in soups and stews. I've seen people dry them and save them to use in cooking later on in the year when they're no longer available. Um, but they're an incredibly versatile mushroom with a very short-lived growing period um but they are a spring delicacy that i people pay good good money for morels let me tell you um a fun fact that i came across and like i got a good chuckle out of this but in eastern european mythology morels were thought to be the work of the devil which i just thought was so funny um and just makes me like them even more and morels so 
All morels are poisonous raw and must be cooked before consuming. And some toxic lookalikes include uh, Giromitra esculenta, which primarily grows in sandy acidic soils near pine trees, which morels typically do not grow near pine trees. So that would be your first sign that it might not be a true morel. But Giromitra esculenta is highly toxic. There are groups out there, um, like there's a Facebook group called False Morals Demystified um, that dives deeper into like the proper preparation and consumption of so-called false morels, which they don't like the term false morel because that's not what it is. Um, but that's completely outside of my wheelhouse, so I tend to stay away from those false lookalikes. Um, anything that even remotely resembles a Giromitra, I I won't even touch it, honestly. Not that like touching it is an issue, um, but because I don't know enough about it myself, I tend to stay away from those. Um, and that's just a false lookalike that um, is poisonous and highly, highly toxic. So that is something that I would avoid. They do, they look similar, but also very, very different and they grow similarly. But the Giromitra is more like reddish orange in color and it does still look kind of like a brain, but it's a little deformed. Um, I will put some pictures in the show notes so you can see the difference between a true morel and a Giromitra because they're so obviously different that if you saw one, you would say that's absolutely not a morel. But that is uh, Morcella esculenta, one of the most popular and highly sought after spring foraging mushrooms. So that was the first mushroom in this series. Um, that is the only mushroom in the spring foraging series that I'm going to talk about. There are many, many more, um, but as spring and summer goes on and things get warmer, there are new different mushrooms that come out um, that I like to forage for personally. So I'll talk about those in a different episode. So that is morels. Next up are wild violets, also known as viola odorata, a beautiful spring perennial common in many people's yards and edges of woodlands. Not only are violets edible, but they're also extremely medicinal. Violets are one of the first flowers to come up in late winter and early spring, and wild violets tend to grow in shady forested areas with really rich soil. Um, violets are easily identified by their basal rosette formation, their hardish shaped toothed leaves, and their purple, blue, or white drooping flowers. And they actually don't spread their seeds by the blooming flowers, um, but they actually spread through the rhizome, which I did not know, so that was really interesting. And some violets are also yellow, but people usually avoid eating the yellow violets because they tend to have a laxative effect. So all parts of the violet plant are edible except the rhizome, which is how they spread, and um, including the leaves, flowers, and stem, all parts are edible. They can be cooked or eaten raw, and all parts of the plant are high in vitamin C, and it's commonly used to make violet simple syrup, violet jelly, and the raw flowers are often added to salads or made into tea. 
and violets have a mucilaginous effect which makes them great to use in cough syrups and help with cold symptoms uh, because plants with mucilaginous effects help get the mucus out um, so if you have an unproductive cough but you have lots of mucus in your chest um, consuming violet tea or some kind of violet syrup can actually help get the mucus out and uh, it can be used in homemade skincare items because it also helps with skin conditions like eczema bug bites and dry skin um, i absolutely love violets i love making stuff with violets um, using it in tea or using it in skin salves because i make um, some of my own skincare products and i also just made violet jelly a couple days ago because i harvested like a pound of violets from my mom's backyard because they just grow everywhere um, and she's got really really rich soils in her backyard so she's got so many medicinal plants back there so it's i love just going into her yard to harvest an entire bounty of spring foraging goodies so violets is another beautiful spring perennial that is amazing to forage um in an old apartment that uh, my family we used to live in the entire it was like two acres of yard was just violets everywhere and we would spend hours and hours just picking the beautiful purple flowers and it's a really fun activity for kids too if you want to get them out in nature and get them like looking at their surroundings and really appreciating nature take them out into the forest and I, lo I love to tell my daughter like go find a yellow flower or go find a purple flower or a blue flower and it becomes like a little adventure and it becomes really fun and you get the kids involved and they start to really see and appreciate their surroundings and the nature around them because they are so innocent and they just see the beauty in the little things so that's another reason why i love foraging so much and i love these spring plants is because it's like a pop of color in the middle of the forest they have so many both personal and medicinal benefits like they're just beautiful great to look at but they're also really good for our bodies and so I love getting the kids involved they're so much fun to go look for and it creates like a little adventure and you get to learn some things and I think that you know they say that um, when kids get older, they're better able to identify like a hundred logos of different companies than they are to identify um, like certain native leaves and tree species. So I try to teach my daughter um, how to appreciate nature and how to identify these things because we really have become so disconnected from our natural environment and our local ecosystems. And this is a great way to get kids involved and make it fun. And they love to pick the pretty purple flowers and then they can help you when you get home to like do stuff with them. So violets is another one that's great for kids. They don't really have any toxic lookalikes. The only toxic lookalike that they do have is like a, a sun-shaped yellow flower that is not even remotely doesn't even remotely look like violets so i don't think that you would be able to mistake violets for anything else and yeah so that's that's violets that was a really quick segment um uh, because there's not really a lot to talk about with violets like most people can identify violet flowers and um i guess a lot of them i didn't know that the whole plant is really high in vitamin c so something to think about when you're out in your yard or you're walking your dog if you see some violets 
maybe pick them because you can make them into tea or you can make them into some other medicinal product. All right, last but not least in my series for spring foraging plants, and like I said in the beginning, this is not an all exhaustive list of all the things you can forage for in the spring. These are just some of my favorite and most common plants that you can forage in the spring, and this is also pretty specific to my area in the Northeast. I live in Vermont, obviously, in zone 4B, so we have a temperate boreal climate ecosystem um, so this is very very specific to northeast united states and upper i guess southern canada foraging um, and some of these plants can be found farther west and as far as California, um, but I am focusing solely on my area of Vermont and the Northeast United States. But next and last but not least is stinging nettle or Urtica dioica, and I hope I pronounced that right. I, I don't think I did, but don't pay any attention to that. So stinging nettle is a very common native edible and medicinal spring plant. It is a perennial. It comes back every year. And stinging nettle, as it states in the name of the plant, is known for its stingers that are along the stem of the plant and on the undersides of the leaves that leave a burning sting if touched or exposed to skin. Stinging nettle grows prolifically all over North America and has many medicinal properties, um, so much so that it's actually considered a superfood for the entire body. Nettle is most well known for its burning sting, which occurs when the trichomes, which is what the stingers are called, they're actually trichomes, um, come into contact with a person's skin and even the sting of a stinging nettle has medicinal benefits. Um, and is actually known to help with rheumatoid arthritis pain and increasing circulation. Um, the juice from the leaves of the nettle plant are said to help with the sting, but you can also use the flowers and the leaves of a jewelweed plant, um, which usually grows close by and also helps with poison ivy to help with the pain of the sting from a nettle trichome. And I will talk about jewelweed in probably my summer foraging episode because there's so much to talk about with jewelweed and all the summer foraging plants. Um, jewelweed is one of my favorite summer foraging plants. But ancient Egyptians actually used stinging nettle to treat arthritis and localized pain in the body. And historically, I mean, going dating back for over 2,000 years, we have recorded evidence of stinging nettle being used um, both medicinally, edibly, um, in indigenous practices. So I will get into that next. But um, being a dark leafy green, nettles are high in iron and folate, which are just amazing for you in general. And most people are deficient in iron and folate. Um, and it also has high levels of protein, calcium, vitamins A, B, C, and K, copper, and manganese, as well as many other essential minerals and nutrients. And actually, the source that I was looking at was saying that nettle has 
all of the essential minerals that a person needs. Um, so I thought that was really cool. Um, nettle is known to help with seasonal allergies, symptoms of the common cold and flu, hay fever, and high blood pressure, among many other things. And there are many documented uses for nettles in indigenous tribes. Um, one of the most well-recorded uses of stinging nettle that stretches back over 2,000 years is called urtication, um, which probably has something to do with the name urtica dioica. Um, but urtication, which was employed by indigenous tribes and many other countries worldwide, involved beating a person's limbs with the stalks of stinging nettle, um, which would cause your entire body to burn and sting due to the trichomes, um, which was thought to serve as a cure for painful arthritic joints. And even though there are some conflicting opinions about the benefits of this practice, it's actually gone on for thousands and thousands of years in indigenous tribes. And some argue that the sting just provides a distraction from the pain of arthritis, while actually um, tribes that have implemented this practice for many, many years have pointed that the injection of histamine by the nettle plant, um, so the stingers actually inject histamine and other chemicals, including serotonin, into your body when the sting happens. Um, but the thought is that the, once the histamine is injected into the body, it creates an antihistamine reaction, which helps the body draw down the inflammation, which is what contributes to rheumatoid arthritis and arthritic pain. Um, and so it's thought that this practice helps reduce arthritic swelling and um, hunters and warriors of indigenous tribes used to use the sting of the nettle to keep themselves during alert or keep themselves alert during battle. And there are also many ceremonial uses of stinging nettle. Um, some tribes out in Nevada and the western United States, North America, burned nettle leaves in sweat lodges. Um, and it served to act as an offering, but also treat pneumonia and the flu. So really, really interesting history around stinging nettle. Um, it is native to North America and it was it's been used for centuries, um, more, more than centuries, in indigenous tribes and various other cultures as both a medicinal, spiritual um, offering and to just maintain a person's overall physical well-being. So that is the episode for today, uh, spring foraging plants that you can find uh, in your local area as long as you are anywhere in North America, um, the northeast parts of the United States and southern parts of Canada, um, and even some things you can find as far west as California. So if you're curious to learn about foraging, I highly suggest that you get some books, check online, visit local groups and the library, and just see what, see what information that you can teach yourself and reach out to your community because there are so many people out there that have a wealth of knowledge around foraging, self-sustainability, and our local ecosystem. So I think it's so important that we all educate ourselves better on our local ecosystems and learn how to um, 
interact sustainably and co-creatively with our environment. Um, there's so much amazing information out there, but also there's some misinformation. So it's really good to be able to discern between, you know, what's legitimate and what's not. Um, but some books that I really, really like, and let me just clean my desk off here. It's a, it's a mess. Um, so my favorite books that I refer back to all the time, um, I'm an experienced forager, but I don't know everything off the top of my head. And if I have a question about identifying anything, um, I refer back to my books because they, they're like encyclopedias. I love them so much and they just, they help me better educate myself and learn what I'm doing um, because foraging is it's a learning process no matter how long you've been doing it for the most experienced forager who could have been foraging for like 80 years can still learn something new um, so my favorite books it would be the Peterson Field Guide to Wild Edible Plants by Lee Peterson um, I this is like this is like every forager's handbook, really. If you want to identify wild edible plants and wild plants native to the Northeast, uh, the Peterson Field Guide. And he's got many different field guides of many different things. So look at any field guide by Lee Peterson. Um, I also have a book that I really love called Foraging with Kids by Adele Nozadar, and I hope I said her name correctly. Um, I love this book. It's got some beautiful illustrations in it, and it makes foraging with kids a lot of fun, and it creates like activities that you can do with them to get them involved, but it's that's a really, really awesome book, and you can read it with your kids too and get them interested. Um, another one would be Northeast Foraging by Lita Meredith. Um, just a great book all around. I would recommend this book to anybody. If you have any interest in foraging at all whatsoever, the Northeast Foraging book is amazing by Lita Meredith. Um, and then last but not least, my other favorite book is Edible and Medicinal Mushrooms of New England and Eastern Canada. Um, especially as you get more into foraging and become a more experienced forager, you're going to start noticing mushrooms everywhere you go. Um, mycelium is what makes up all of the beneficial properties of our soil. Um, mycelium also helps contribute to trees' ability to communicate with each other, and um, it works interactively with the ecosystem. Um, and without mycelium, our world and our, our natural world wouldn't exist. Um, so Edible and Medicinal Mushrooms of New England and Eastern Canada by, who is this book by? David Spar. And SPAR is spelled S-P-A-H-R. And it's a geographic guidebook to finding and using key species of mushrooms in Eastern United States and Canada. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's a little mini episode, but I, I wanted something that was a little more fun and also pertains to the season and I'm going to be doing this with each season I'm going to do uh, this is my first one spring I'm also going to do summer fall and winter foraging once those times come around so I really hope you enjoyed this episode I did want to give a huge thank you and shout out to our very first patron Casey 
Thank you so much for your contribution to the podcast. Um, Without my patrons, I would not be able to put on this podcast and keep this going. So your membership and your contributions are so appreciated. And you know, I appreciate you so much. And I, I know Casey. So thank you. Thank you so much for being a patron. Um, if you are interested in being a patron, you can visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash moon. I am working on getting my membership tiers up and running, um, but my schedule has been kind of crazy lately. Uh, my daughter, we just missed her last soccer game because we couldn't find her soccer jersey anywhere. Um, it's now, what's today? Tuesday? It's now three days later, and we still have not found her soccer jersey. Um, So I took that as a sign from the universe that we were done with soccer because I was kind of like mentally tapped out. She was not as into it this season around as she has been the last two years. So it was kind of like, you know what? Like, I think we're all done with this. So we're going to take this as a sign that soccer's over. Um, and honestly, I was starting to get drained because it was like three days a week after, after school and the weekends. And so we just had no free time. So I am working on putting some more time into the podcast now that we've got some extra free time without the extracurriculars. But I know that things will fill the void as they always do. But thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week. everyone. If you liked this episode and you like the content that we put out and want to be alerted to new episodes, I would highly recommend you follow us on social media. Mugwort and Moon Podcast is on Instagram and TikTok at Mugwort and Moon Pod. And you can also find us on Patreon. If you would like to subscribe to be a patron of ours, you will have access to um, our early access episodes. You can also have access to some special behind the scenes goodies, one-on-one with me. Um, And we're also going to be having guests on the podcast as the show grows. So please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash mugwort and moon look at our membership tiers i am working on adding some more information um, and we're going to have some patron only episodes so i look forward to putting those out and if you like mugwort and moon please join us on social media and patreon and i look forward to seeing you guys next week